0: Read 1 Samuel 13 to kind of preface what we're going to talk about and then we'll jump back into 1 Samuel 17, okay? These are the words of God. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has brought out a man, sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you let's pray father we thank you for gathering us together today to worship you and to be instructed by you and i pray that we would do just that now god that you would help me to get out of the way as i preach so that these people can hear from you that you would help them to connect with you and be free from distraction and hear what you are saying to their hearts in this sermon this day we pray in christ's name amen all right Uh, Last time we were together, we left off with Gideon, and uh, we saw that Gideon had taken up the work that God had called him to do of cleansing the land of wickedness and idolatry. And we also mentioned uh, that the people had not finished the conquest under Joshua as they were supposed to. So now they were now uh, dwelling and living amongst wicked and evil, idolatrous men. And they lost sight of the mission of God and went into all sorts of abominable practices. Well, we saw Gideon got Israel back on track, and he did that for a time with his reforms. But sadly enough, at the end of his life, Gideon, too, uh, goes into idolatry. And the book of Judges ends with two stories that kind of show us what the moral climate was like in Israel at that time. You have the story of Micah and uh, the Levite and the story of the Israelite and his concubine. Uh, Those stories show us the religious and social breakdown among the people and in many ways indicate the fact that Israel had begun to act just like their pagan neighbors, uh, the Canaanites. And the tribe of Benjamin is highlighted to show us an example of just how far Israel had fallen at the end of the book of Judges. It's basically Sodom and Gomorrah all over again, and the people are acting like the worst of the worst. And again, the question at the end of the book is, is who will be God? Will the people continue to do what is right in their own eyes, or will the Lord be their God? Will the Lord be their king? Well, the question is the same at the beginning of the books of Samuel. And guess what? The people are still in rebellion. (laughs) Uh, And they decide that they want a king for themselves like the rest of the nations. And God warns them through Samuel what will happen if they do this thing. But nevertheless, they decide to go ahead And God gives them Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And it's interesting to note that Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin, this tribe that had grossly abandoned the Lord at the end of the book of Judges. And so here they get this man from this apostate tribe to rule over them. Now, Saul makes some progress in the beginning of his um, ministry as king. Uh, but it's not long before he too goes into rebellion and God rejects him as king and chooses David in his place. And there are many who think that the story of David and Goliath is about the story of the underdog. Uh, David is the story about uh, the little shepherd boy who comes up for Israel and saves the day. But really what we are seeing in the story of David and Goliath is a story about the ideal king. Israel needs to know what a true king looks like, what a righteous king looks like, and David is the man who will show that to them. And in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, we see that same pattern that we have mentioned throughout our series. As soon as the people begin to make some progress for God, the enemy attacks them. Every time they make a little progress, the enemy attacks. There's a battle, there's an affliction, there's a an test. And here again, the enemy is attacking. Saul failed to obey God as king, and God anointed David to take his place. And here in the story of David and Goliath, David proves that he is the real king. So first, let's look at the enemy of Israel. we we'll gonna look at the enemy of Israel, the defender of Israel, and the outcome of the battle First, let's look at the enemy of God's people. We see that in verses 1 through 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17. Now the, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Now David was the son of an Epaphite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. Um, So the Philistines come up against Israel here, and here you have this giant named Goliath who is taunting Israel. Now, is this the first time that the people have ran into giants? No, right? You remember when they first come up to the borders of the Promised Land, they say that the descendants of Anak are there. That is, there are giants there and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so they're afraid to go in and take the land. But then the generation after them under Joshua does come in and take the land from the giants and they dispossess them of it. So it is possible that this giant is a descendant of the very giants who David, uh, who Joshua and the Israelites dispossessed of their land. And here he's coming back up for some vengeance. There's something else that I want you to notice about this giant. The text says that he's armed with a coat of mail. Uh, literally, he was wearing scales. He wore a scale-like armor, which points us to the fact that this is none other than that old enemy of God's people, the serpent, the devil. Remember, we have said since the beginning of our series that there is going to be continual hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here we see that hostility coming to the fore once again. The devil has stirred up wicked and evil men to attack the people of God. Finally, I want to point out that the text says his height was six cubits and a span. That is nine feet tall. Okay, Almost ten feet. I think it was nine feet nine inches. So this is a a giant. (laughs) And in verse 8, he says... He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And then down in verse 11, we read, When Saul and all Israel heard these words, uh, heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, some of you may remember when Saul was anointed king, he was said to be head and shoulders Above the rest of his brothers. That means he was really, really tall. Okay? And here you have this man uh, who is nine feet tall taunting Israel and Saul, and the Israelites were probably, you know, normal height, five feet tall. But you've got Saul, this man that towers above the rest of them. And so, who is this? Who is the one that's being highlighted here so that should go out against Saul? The giant says, I want to have a, a one-on-one match. We'll fight. Send one of your men out. And whoever loses that battle, their people will submit to the other one. So who's being highlighted here in this instance that should be going out to fight against the giant? Well, obviously, it's the man who's taller than all the rest of the people, head and shoulders above the rest, and he's the king. But sadly, we see that Saul cowers with all the rest of Israel. In this instance. So we've looked at the enemy of God's people. Next to the defender of God's people, David, the son of Jesse. Look at verse 12 again. Now, David was the son of an Aprethite, I don't know exactly how that's pronounced, of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle and the names of his three sons who went up to battle were Eliab, the firstborn and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Uh, David was the youngest. Uh, The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So it says here that David was the Uh, youngest of his brothers. And if you remember the anointing of David uh, by Samuel, when he comes to uh, David's father's house to anoint him, he first sees his eldest brother who's got great stature, and so he's thinking that he's the one. And the Lord says, don't look at his appearance. And then he goes through all seven of David's brothers, and the Lord says no to each one. And then Samuel finds out that he has another brother who's out in the field herding sheep, and God says that that is the one. So here you have a man who is the youngest in his family. He's the least person that you expect to be the defender and uh, and king of God's people, but here he is. And if you remember from our story last week, Gideon was said to be the least in his father's house, but yet God used him to deliver Israel. So here we have another Gideon-like figure in David. Now, when the Israelites uh, went up to battle the Philistines, David was not sent because he was uh, not old enough to go out to battle. Uh, You had to be 20 years old to battle, and David was probably around 17. But his father does send him to go and bring some food to his brothers and see how the battle is going. And when he gets there, he hears the giant mocking Israel. He hears the, the giant and all these things that he has to say about Israel and their God, and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? That is, who is this pagan out here talking smack about God? What? And David's blown away. His brothers are just sitting there cowering along, along with the rest of the Israelites, and they haven't said anything or done anything about it. And David keeps going on, and one of his brothers actually tries to shut him up, Uh, But he keeps going, and then Saul hears about it. And when word gets to Saul that he's all amped up about this thing, Saul calls for him. We pick that up in verses 32 through 37. Drop down to 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul tries to dissuade David from fighting this giant. And he's like, pshh. He's like, you know, whenever I used to tend my father's flock and a bear or a lion would run up, I, I would just grab him by his beard and punch him in the head and he would run off. And this serpent is just the same. He will be like one of them. This pagan has defied God. He's mocking our God and the Lord will be with me as I go out to fight against him. You see, David knows who he is. David knows that he comes from a long line of giant slayers. And God has used David's people to slay giants in the past and he will do it again And he also knows who his God is. He knows that his God is the God of Israel. And there is no God like the God of Israel, Yahweh, who is so near to his people and who listens to them when he calls upon them. Which is the next thing that I want you to notice. When David goes to war, he recognizes that God fights for him. And that the battle is the Lord. Look at the the weapons that he uses in verse 40. Verse 40 we read, Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. There are a couple things that I want us to notice here in this section. First, David takes with him five smooth stones, a, a, a staff, and a sling. What are these things? Well, these are the implements uh, that he uses for herding sheep and for protecting the sheep. But here we see that God is going to use those common everyday tools that he's given to David to defeat the giant. Uh, David's father was a sheep herder, and he used these things to herd and protect sheep. But now he's going to use them as the weapons of war. And it's interesting to note that the Benjamites, the tribe that Saul came from, supposedly uh, could sling a stone with one of these slings and hit a hare. They can knock a hair down with this thing. And so, why is Saul not out there with his sling? Right? He's a Benjamite. But here comes David with his, and his aim is true. Uh, next, we see David talks trash to the giant. If you look at verse 41, he says uh, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. So so what are David and uh, Goliath doing here? They've entered into a spitting match, right? They're talking back and forth to one another. Uh, The giant says to David, come out here and I'll break you down and I'll feed you to the birds. And David says, yeah, he says, I'm going to knock you out and cut your head off. The the giant wants to talk smack. I can talk some smack too. And finally, we see that David does it all in the name of the Lord. You look at the latter part of chapter forty of verse forty six. He says, And I will give the head, uh, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So David goes out acknowledging that God is with him and that this battle belongs to the Lord, Goliath is in a fight with God. He recognizes that. And so David knows that the giant does not have a chance. David acknowledges that this is God's fight, and therefore he has nothing to worry about. All right, last we look at the outcome of the battle. Verses 48 through 54. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David... David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaarim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Two things. Um, First, the text emphasizes the fact that David prevailed over Goliath without a sword in his hand. The only thing that he has to uh, fight were these implements that God gives to him. He has no sword. He has no armor. It is God who delivers Goliath into David's hand. It was God who made sure that that rock traveled straight through the forehead of Goliath. And afterwards, David comes up to Goliath and takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off with it and then takes his head and he sends it to Jerusalem. And it's interesting to note that he sends it to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was not being occupied by Israel at this time. It's being occupied by the Jebusites. So why does he do this? Well, possibly as a warning of what is going to happen to them next if they do not submit to Israel. Second, I said there were two things. After the Philistine realized that their champion is dead, they flee. And the men of Israel pursue them with a shout. The victory of David over this giant encourages Israel to take up arms. They realize that the Lord is with him, with them, that he's going to fight on their behalf. This is a pivotal moment in the life of Israel. They realize that the Lord's with them and all they have to do is go out and fight and God is going to destroy their enemies for them. So we've seen that David is the true king. He steps up to fight on behalf of Israel when Saul should have. He trusts in the Lord to fight the battle for him, and in faith, he fights with a sling and a stone, the weapons that God had given him. This little shepherd boy, he comes and he does the thing that Saul should have been doing all along. David is the real king, but does he not point us to an even greater king? Our king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the greater David, He is the greater king who steps up on our behalf and fights the war that we could not fight. Friends, in the story, we are the Israelites cowering on the sidelines as Jesus steps up to wrestle with an even greater Goliath. You see, Goliath is not the last serpent in the story. Remember, David sent the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Well, 2,000 years later in Jerusalem, there is another head of Goliath found, Goliath of Gath points to the place of the skull, Golgotha, where Christ was crucified. It is there that Christ uh, struck a definitive blow upon the head of the enemy once and for all with his cross. And on Golgotha, Jesus has slain the giants once and for all. And On the cross, the seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. And friends, in Jesus Christ, we have been given the victory once and for all. He has done it, and now He says, go and clean up the mess. You get that? He's struck the definitive blow, but now He tells us to go and clean up the mess. Remember, the enemy was routed at the death of Goliath. They fled and Israel pursued them and struck them down until they had conquered them. And then they uh, plundered their camp. And it is the same in the day in which we are living. Uh, Goliath has been defeated. The definitive blow has landed. So the enemy is now on the run and we are to shout and pursue. Now, what are we at war with? Well, it's this whole world system, the kingdom of this world, That is under the influence of sin and the devil. By the way, uh, both of these things, all of these things have already been conquered by Jesus. So again, it's a cleanup effort. He's already won the battle. He is winning the battle. But we are to battle with him. We are to fight the war with him. So what are some of our giants today? Where do we see the descendants of Goliath in the church and in the world. Well, mainly in two places, uh, uh, in the uh, religious systems and the world systems that are fundamentally in conflict with the kingdom of God. Uh, But I'm going to mention only two for our discussion today. Social and political giants. Social and political giants. So first of all, political. In many ways, we're just like the Israelites of old. Uh, we, We want a king like the rest of the nations. That is, we want to be ruled over by pagans. We want a king who will give us our fleshly desires. But what we really need is a real king like David who will lead us into true and lasting victory. This is to say we need to remember that Jesus is king. Um, The problem with the Israelites was that they had rejected God as their king and therefore they ended up with all of these uh, rulers who oppressed them and brought them into, uh, who led them into all sorts of different bondage, ended up being oppressed as a result. But look around us today. We want the government to take care of all of our problems in our nation. For the most part in our culture today, we're living in a welfare state. People are openly promoting the idea in our day that socialism is a good thing, this idea that the government can be trusted to to take care of all of our problems. And in this system the government essentially becomes our daddy, right? And we take all of our earnings and we give them to Papa and he slowly gives them back to us in increments at the end of the day. And what you end up with in a system like this is people who solely depend upon man to save them. Government is the savior. It provides for us health care and food and clothing and shelter and even cell phones. And it, it, it becomes a god. right? But the problem is, Government is run by sinful men. And too much power in the hands of sinful men is not a good thing because men are evil. And this is why we need a law from above to govern us. We need a law from outside of us. We need a law that is holy and righteous and good to appeal to. We need a standard that we can appeal to to give us principles and guidelines for everything we do. But what we have done in our day is we have abandoned the law of God and put the law of man in its place. We say, we'll follow the law of man instead. And it's the will of the people that becomes ultimate, but it was not always this way. Uh, The church down through the ages um, knew the Bible. They knew what the law of God said. They knew what a tyrannical government looked like. They knew what just laws were. They knew what just economic policies were. The church understood the different spheres of government and their proper place in the world. I think one of the greatest giants that we need to conquer in the day in which we are living is our biblical illiteracy. For the most part, we are people who just don't know the Bible. And we depend on Google to tell us everything that we need to know. Uh, But Google cannot give us a biblical theology of welfare, cannot tell us how we are to deal with the poor, and how we are to deal with social issues on a whole, and how we are to deal with foreign policies, and on and on and on. Google cannot do this. So we need to get back to the law of God, we need to learn what it says as a people, we need to have answers, biblical answers, words from God to deal with the brokenness in our world. And friends, this current political system that we are under is headed for disaster. And it will implode on itself. It's not a question of if it will. It will. Uh, But when it does, there need to be people around who know what they are talking about to clean up the mess. So first, political giants. Second, I want to mention a social giant. And it's two, really. Hollywood and the music industry. (laughs) for the most part, pagans have taken over these two industries. You know this, right? You listen to most of the music out there today on the radio and watch the movies. Whether you realize it or not, our culture is largely driven by the music that we listen to and the movies that we watch. This is to say that our culture is largely driven by the arts. Uh, If you think about the narrative that is coming out of most films in Hollywood today, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, most of the big movies that are coming out of Hollywood promote this secular humanist agenda that is absolutely poisonous to our society. And Christians have abandoned the arts. And when we do movies and music, for the most part, it's terrible. (laughs) Some of you have seen these cheesy Christian films that I'm talking about, right? (laughs) You have to... You have to force yourself to watch them, not because they're good, but because they're Christian, right? And I I don't think that's right. I don't think that we should. Um, And again, this is the result of bad theology. About a hundred years ago, we abandoned the idea that the culture is important, that it's an important thing for us to engage with the culture, that it's important for us to be in the public square and to have a voice. And... Um, for the most part, we've been in retreat. Uh, We gave up the public arena to pagans, and therefore they're controlling the narrative of our day. If you watch TV, or if you listen to music, or if you turn on the news, um, you know that there's an agenda behind everything that's being said, right? There's a worldview behind it that's being pushed. And we've allowed all of this for the... um, for the sake of maintaining this sort of uh, sacred-secular dichotomy, this idea that as Christians, we need to be over here in our little Christian huddle in the corner doing our Christian stuff over here, and then the world does their stuff over there. And ultimately what this does is lowers our uh, standards. And brothers and sisters, this has done great damage to the church and to the world. Uh, The church used to lead the culture and the arts and the entertainment industry. Some of the greatest artists ever were Christians. To name a few, Johann Sebastian Bach. Does that name sound familiar? Christian. Michelangelo. Not the Ninja Turtle. Guys. C.S. Lewis. J.R. Tolkien, the list could go on, but now we have this idea that we need to keep Christianity private in our homes, and it's a personal matter, and it's not for the world, and it's led to some really, really bad practices, okay? Basically, what we've done is we've created this sub-genre for Christian music and for Christian art and for Christian movies, and we've lowered our standards so that the Christians are over here doing their Christian stuff and... The world is over there doing all the secular stuff and we're not even competing with them at all uh, because we have our Christian huddle. We have this subgenre, And what you end up with is a lot of really bad art. <laughs> As a result, Christian and non-Christian alike. And I'll tell you what, for the most part, the arts and the culture are going down the tubes. And why is that? Well, because they don't have any revelation. They They don't have... Any light from God, and you end up with this postmodern garbage that we see today, which says if you just jumble a bunch of stuff together in one place, you stick it all together right there, it's art. You know, even knowing I can't tell what I'm looking at or I can't make out what it is I'm listening to, it's art, man, right? It's abstract art. It's garbage. <clears throat> so, what do we do to combat these political and social giants? Uh, we need to be like David and take up arms. What are our weapons? What did David do whenever the giant came out to taunt Israel? He talked smack to the giant. He talked smack to the giant. When the enemy's out there running their mouth in the public square, we need to remember who they are, who we are. And we need to run up to the line like David and have something to say. And in order to have something to say, you need to know who you are, and what you represent. These pagans have (laughs) defied the God of the armies of Israel, and it is his battle. Therefore, they don't stand a chance. All they're really doing is talking loud most of the time. And sometimes, somebody just needs to go out there and talk louder. Um, Moreover, we need to know what we believe. David believed that Goliath was in a fight with God, and it's the same for us. The secular humanist of our day has no uh, standards to appeal to. They have no justifications for any of the things that they say or for the laws that they legislate. As a matter of fact, they have to depend on the basic things that God has revealed to everybody to be able to say and do anything. And we need to remember that. They're living on borrowed capital. As it was, Greg Bonson used to say that. We must remember that God has given us revelation, direct revelation in the church. He's revealed himself to us. He's revealed his will to us. And he's revealed everything that we need to know for the battle, the fight in this day in which we're living. Also, we need to remember that this was not David's first fight. Remember, he had been wrestling with bears and lions. David knew how to do battle because he had been doing battle. This is to say that we need to be out there fighting in order to know how to fight. Practice makes perfect, right? Because if you don't do it, then you won't know how to do it. So we've got to start fighting. We've got to start pushing back. Um, finally, to combat these political and social giants in our day, we need to remember that David used the things that God had given him. The shaft, uh, the, the shepherd's staff and the sling. God has given us some things in the church today. He has given us gifted men and women. Do you write? Write better books than all the pagans. Write better books. Do you sing? Sing well. Sing better than the world sings. you good at throwing parties? Throw better parties than all the pagans. Whatever it is you do, do it well and for the glory of God. And God will use it to topple these giants and to change our world. God has given us His Word. We have a direct revelation from God on how we are to go about doing this thing. He's given us the battle plan, as it were. Right here, everything we need to know is in His Word. He's given us unlimited access into His presence. Through prayer, we can go before the God of the universe and petition Him, and He listens to us. When we do that, and He acts on our behalf in the world, He's given us worship, and when we come in here and worship God rightly in the way that He's told us to do so, and we faithfully exercise and administer uh, the sacraments, He uses these things to change the world. He uses them to defeat our giants. He's given us fellowship. He's given us one another in the church so that we can stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with one another as we fight and slay the giants in the generation in which we're living. He's given us all these things. He's given us means. He's given us blessings. He's given us people. He's given us gifts. We are equipped for the war. Now all we have to do is fight. Like I said, it's a clean-up effort. The enemy is on the run. and We must pursue them with a shout. So in closing, we come from a long line of giant slayers. Like David, uh, and like Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has defeated the even greater Goliath once and for all, and now he sends us out to clean up the mess. The enemy is on the run, he has been routed, and he will be destroyed completely, but we must fight. And we must remember that when we fight, we do not fight alone. All of heaven is on our side. God is on our side and the battle belongs to him. Therefore, we shall surely win the fight.